Azrat Mirza Majru Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate, the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the Holy Founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, continues the work of the Holy Founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Your faith is dedicated to serving the society that you live in, and from what I've seen, heard, and, and, and experienced from mainstream charities, schools, and churches, your faith and community have contributed in significant ways. I have personally experienced and heard that you have raised tens of thousands of pounds uh, on sponsored walks for children, older people, and people with disabilities. You have dedicated yourselves to charitable social projects, and most significantly of all, you have not distinguished between faiths, ethnicities, or communities. The community's many social projects, aimed at helping those in need, bears testimony to humanitarian concerns in respect of all human beings regardless of race, color, or creed. The Armidian community have an extraordinary reputation abroad for charitable work in Africa, India, Bosnia, and Indonesia, amongst other places. But your note, your community here too have an extraordinary reputation. You have been generous with your time and resources, and you have made yourselves part of the wider community. The Ahmadiyya community has always been at the forefront, not only of helping their own, but actually helping within society as a whole, is one of the reasons why, if I may say to you, your presence in this country has been so beneficial to us. In the past hundred years, you have given so much to the society in the United Kingdom and to societies everywhere globally. You are among those who give and who not only take. You give so much to so many societies that I have seen and felt and listened to and watched. Ahmadis are also renowned for working to serve the greater good through social, health and educational initiatives as well as mass projects. Your own work, Your Holiness, particularly in West Africa, is well known. And we heard just now about your attempts to bring water and energy supplies to some of the poorest communities in West Africa. Together, we should fight common enemies such as illiteracy, disease, hunger, and poverty.
the Admir Ahmadiyya mission has put structures in place towards the fight against these common enemies in order to enhance the dignity of man. The mission has been a vanguard and a partner in collaborating with government in the areas of education, health, agriculture, and human animation. Community mission in Sierra Leone. Really, they've made a pivotal contribution uh, to the education in our country. You just have to look around wherever you are. And I have to say, Your Holiness, that I was touched by the way in which your predecessor as spiritual leader instructed your community, the Amade community, to befriend and look after those suffering as a result of the Bosnian conflict. And I was very impressed by that. Everywhere that mankind suffers, your members have been active in bringing help and saving lives and limbs. The community was created under divine guidance with the objective to rejuvenate Islamic moral and spiritual values. It encourages interfaith dialogue, diligently defending Islam and attempting to correct misunderstandings about the religion in the West. I very much welcome this opportunity of paying tribute to the wonderful work which has been done by the Ahmadiyya community towards the objective which we are seeking to promote this evening of achieving peace through understanding and tolerance. The Ahmadiyya community are doing a tremendous job in building bridges between the different communities in our country, between different ethnic, linguistic uh, and religious groups up and down the country. And I also know that they have a wonderful record in other parts of the world. I'd like to start by saying just how important the work of the Ahmadiyya community is. It deepens others' understanding of your own faith and it gives a voice to those who are marginalised in their own societies. Now, what has so impressed me as I have come to understand more about uh, the Ahmadiyya faith is your remarkable commitment to interfaith dialogue, your commitment to the principle of non-compulsion in religion, and your commitment to peace and tolerance. You, the Ahmadis, stand as a beacon in your strong belief that we must find the answers to these debates through open, thoughtful, and gentle discussion. And you are also a beacon because you show us that we must find the answers to these debates through practical action. The Ahmadiyya Mission is one religious organization in Ghana which has demonstrated ample tolerance in terms of its preparedness to cooperate with all other religious bodies, Muslim and Christian alike. How good you have been to our community, the community that you found here. Today you reflect so many professions, so many different walks of life. You uphold all the virtues and the vigorous ethics that uh, your faith has given you from birth. At this pivotal point in international relations, many questions and concerns have been raised concerning the doctrines of Islam. Most have incorrectly interpreted Islam as endorsing violence and terrorism. 
the Ahmadiyya community has always demonstrated the spirit of tolerance, goodwill and true brotherhood. It advocates peace, love and understanding among followers of different faiths. It firmly believes in and acts upon Quranic teachings. It strongly rejects violence and terrorism in any form and for any reason. The movement offers a clear presentation of Islamic wisdom, philosophy, morals and spirituality as derived from the Holy Quran and the practice of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad. Peace and blessings of Allah be on him. For me, as a student of Islam for now almost 30 years, I am constantly amazed by the depth of service that is certainly represented by this community and tradition, by the depth of tolerance and the constant searching for what it means to be human. To be of human means to be of service. And I think this is so dramatically represented by the message of this community. Good morning and welcome to Saturday Morning Live on the 25th of November. It's uh, 10 past 10. Uh, you're joined here in the studio by myself, Shaz Alone, and my colleague uh, in the studio today, Hamza Vanderman. Good morning, Hamza. How are you doing? Morning. Very well, thank you. Yeah, bright and uh, fresh morning in uh, London today. Yeah, I don't mind these ones. Very bright. It's a bit cold, but it's very bright. Not sun's out. Clear yeah, skies. Good, you, isn't it? Yeah, you don't mind because I had to pick you up in the morning and sit in the car, wait for the windows to defrost, which hasn't happened for a long, long time. <laughs> I think you have to add in now an extra five, ten minutes just for that now. So, you know. Uh, Is that your excuse for being late? <laughs> no, I was bang on time. Uh, but uh, no, otherwise, uh, you know, welcome to our show this morning, Saturday morning live. Um, we are a live show. Uh, we'll be discussing current affairs. A lot's obviously been happening globally. Uh, we'll be discussing, obviously, the um, the big news that's that's dominated um, airwaves uh, for a number of weeks now, which is the very unfortunate uh, humanitarian crisis that we're seeing in Gaza. We'll be touching on that. And uh, in and around what's happening in the UK with the autumn statement that was uh, given. And we'll be looking even into Europe as well uh, with the Dutch election. So there's a lot been happening uh, on the political scene and on the global geopolitical side. So that's something that we'll be focusing on. And it'll be our usual sports um, section as well, because a lot's been happening in the world there as well. So um, please do join us. Uh, we are a live show. Uh, so if you feel uh, the need to voice an opinion or... Uh, let us know. So you can call us on 0208 687 7878. That's 0208 687 7878. Or our Twitter handle at Voice of Islam UK or via the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Uh, Hamza, what are we kicking off the show with today? What's what's the key sort of news roundup stories that we're looking at? Yeah, look, I, as you said, I think it's um, it's clearly been going on for a long time, but mm. there has been a, a, <coughs> a positive update on the crisis in Gaza uh, over the last uh, couple of days with mm. the um, uh, host the agreed hostages uh, swap um, yep. being carried out so far uh, successfully um, and with the second day of the uh, pause in um, uh, the t in the four day ceasefire mm. day two uh, which is going on at the moment has been held um, <clears throat> and allowing those um, Israelis and Palestinian hostages prisoners to be uh, to be released. So, just as a recap, 150 uh, Palestinian yep. uh, prisoners to be uh, to be released, uh, and 50 uh, five zero uh, Israeli hostages to be released um, back. So, you know, obviously 
positive mm. uh, movement in the right direction, four days to get uh, humanitarian aid into Gaza, four days of a break of fighting, uh, which is obviously a good thing. And um, we can just hope and pray that that at the end of those four days um, that the ongoing uh, war um, quickly comes to a resolution. How key do you think it is? I mean, I, in terms of like, now we had this pause and, you know, the number of times you've seen on social media, you know, you know, why are we having a pause for genocide? Th- those are the sort of things that are being said uh, very openly. Um, what do we feel, you know, you know, are the next steps, you know, in this scenario? Because, you know, you have a pause, but then, you know, do you continue, you know, with this, you know, sort of onslaught? Yeah, look, I think the... Um it's obvious, it, you know, it goes without saying this is, you know, it's obviously a horrible, horrible situation um, mm. over there uh, with the numbers of people dying. Yeah. You know, just very, very difficult to get your to, to get your head around. Mm. I think what's happened here is, uh, from what I've read, was that this was that there was an increasing pressure on the uh, Israeli government from actually its own citizens. I think, mm. you know, Israeli citizens are really the only voices i think mm. that the israeli government list that listens to i think international pressure um from other populations from other governments has quite a, you know as we've seen over the last few decades almost mm. quite a limited limited impact unless it's that pressure is going to be strong and resolute from mm. let's say the united states which, which it hasn't been right biden has been very passive and it won't be mm. so the only voices that it really you know pressure that it can take or listens to and knows it needs to keep on size the Israeli the Israeli um, civilians, yeah. and I think the Israeli civilians were basically, from what I read, were getting the pressure was increasing, saying, "What well, you haven't done anything about the two hundred hostages?" Yeah, you know, okay, we're we're taking out Hamas and we're you know blowing up Gaza, but what are you doing about the two hundred hostages? That mm. seems to have been. And so I think the Israeli government at that point realized it needed to show some progress there mm. and was therefore willing to accept the pause in order to get um, some of the hostages back, 50. But yeah. there's 200, and so there's another 150 that they will be under increasing pressure to get back. And so the Israeli government will need to agree further pauses, further uh, mm. further space t- to get to get their to yeah. get the remaining hostages back because if you're one of the you know if you're one of the families of the 200 or people connected with the 200 and you're not in the 50 that have been released mm. I think you know yeah you're 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 going to be putting your government the Israeli government under pressure to try and create the space for that for the return now I don't know what it means longer term yeah. and it you know it's almost it's you know it's Again, it's so sad, but it's almost inevitable that the uh, the bombing just resumes on day five, right? I mean, that's 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 the sad part of the whole thing, right? It's just, I mean, you can understand now, like, as you said, and it's a, probably is a good focus that it is the uh, you know Israeli citizens that you know Netanyahu has to not pander to them, but I mean, ultimately, he's had a security breach. That has not looked good on his watch, mm-hmm. you know. It's not, and it wasn't like it was, you know, expensive military, um, you know, equipment that that allowed the attack to happen originally on October the seventh. You know, it's very sort of, you know, basic, 
uh, you know, ways ways of getting into the the border and and then uh, you know committing the the atrocities that occurred. But I think um, now, yeah, you're right. Maybe that's the next focus. But yeah, I mean, day five pause and rebombing and stuff like that. What does that do for your hostage situation? I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's all as as we understand it. This hostage swap has all been led by the Qataris. Yeah. So there's a big, you know, diplomatic effort going on uh, through the Qataris to try and to try and uh, you know bring some sort of uh, amicable, peaceful solution sooner rather than later. And you know, the four day peace, four day pause. Sorry. <clears throat> While that in itself is a good thing, it is also four days for further diplomatic talks yep. to be to be carried out you know, publicly privately through other channels through whatever means yeah those four days aren't just about yeah a pause mm-hmm. and uh, humanitarian aid going in and the hostages being swapped there will also be a lot you know a lot of diplomatic efforts being t- to see what space there is I, and i don't know what if that has any impact in terms of bombing restarting on day five it probably yeah. doesn't but it those four days the amount of conversations that will be had in those four days will be beneficial i think in terms of at least bringing the end the end point uh in if that makes sense yeah yeah i mean look you, you would certainly hope so and i think i think it's i think the part that 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 hurts uh, a lot of people who are watching this um is obviously that the loss of life in general which any loss of life is is sad uh, from a humanitarian perspective but I, I, it's the fact that women and children are just being indiscriminately mm-hmm. slaughtered and i think that's you know i think when you see i mean we live in a different world now i think in terms of, of um, you know social media in particular you know you're not just following your broadsheets your newspapers or your you know itn or your you know one or two programs which which may give you a news outflow you know now you're seeing you know quite graphic quite harrowing images you yeah, know day in day out and you know it's to a certain point maybe some people become desensitized to it but there are other times when you'll see something which really hits you you know when you see especially when you see i think dead children and those sort of things i mean i just don't know how you process that after a while um and that becomes really really difficult but i think that's one of those things where i think from an islamic perspective you know i think we we, we were talking off air you know if you talk about you know the rights and wrongs of this scenario you know i don't think anyone has any moral ground left you know in terms of of what's going on um it's a difficult scenario to navigate but from an islamic perspective one thing that's not just you know is is a non-negotiable even in a state of war and this is something his holiness Hazrat of the amadi community the leader said that even in a state of war islam does not permit the killing of women children elderly and innocent civilians and the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessings uh, be upon him gave strict instructions against doing so and in this recent escalation of the war hamas made the first move in attacked israeli citizen leaving aside for a moment the fact that innocent people have been unjustly killed by the israeli army muslims should ensure that they always adhere to the teachings of islam so i guess you know we're holding you know muslims to even a higher standard uh, in that regard um but it's just a very difficult situation to navigate, even to discuss sometimes. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's interesting. There have been, you know, and as the, as as the conflict goes on, and this is why I say stuff like four days pause mm. should not be underestimated, because in those four days you can, yeah. it does give the space for comments, and you know, and that's four days of people not dying and not being bombed and dying. It should not. Obviously, it's not. We would love. We, everybody would want a longer ceasefire and longer term peace but mm. i think a four day pause should not be um 
<clears throat> should not be underestimated. And you know, it was only yesterday David Cameron back in as uh, amazingly. We can talk about this later yeah. as part of the autumn statement yeah. uh, discussion. Back in as foreign secretary, um, and already taking a much different tone on mm. the issue than maybe he did when he was prime minister. So in comments, you know, on the on the issue as as foreign minister. Um, yesterday to the BBC, he said he warned Israel that it will never be secure unless there is, and and then he said, long-term safety, security and stability for the Palestinian people. Um, He said it was important for Israel to realise that it must act in a way that delivers its long-term security, and that would ultimately depend on Palestinians living in peace and stability and security in the land at the same time. Mm. So you know, this is that that's a very different type of language that we've heard from you know anyone in the in the UK in terms of uh, in terms of statesmen. Yeah. And then and then the other point that I thought was was interesting. He again, and I think this is much stronger than any other words I've heard before from from UK politicians. When I met the Israeli president, prime minister, and others, I stressed over and over again that they must be abide. By international humanitarian law, that the number of casualties are too high, mm. and they have to have that at the top of their minds. Now, I know similar words have been used before in terms of abiding by international law, but that is much, much stronger mm. than uh, the tone and the language that's being used. Much str- like, look, whether this has any impact or not, I think yeah. this is what I think this is the type of language most people in the UK wanted to hear senior politicians using. Yeah. And then again, and then and then. And then again, on the West Bank, not many UK politicians have been talking about the West Bank. He talks about the West Bank. Uh, uh, People, he's talking about Israeli people, uh, are actually targeting and on occasion killing Palestinian civilians. It's completely unacceptable. And those people responsible for that, that's not good enough just to arrest them. They need to be arrested, prosecuted and imprisoned. These are crimes. So I think it's interesting Mm. that he's come in and very quickly, he's only been in for the space of a week. Yeah. Uh, it very quickly changed the tone, the UK government's tone on this. Yeah, uh, and I don't think, I don't think, again, I don't think that is a small thing. That mm. that 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 is a big thing, I think. Um, and if he's saying that publicly, yeah. you can imagine he is going further privately. Um, yeah. uh, and so I think that's why I come back to each day matters. If you create yeah. the space for yeah, for pause and for pause and yeah. for people to mm. put pressure on where they can yeah possibly inshallah you can get a peaceful uh, solution sooner rather than later yeah absolutely and look we're, we're costing i mean you know the 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 deaths that are happening mm-hmm. you know every day that there is a pause obviously you know you hope we're saved from that and and the future of you know you know, perhaps very many, many thousands will be saved, and, and that's what we hope and pray for. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think in terms of diplomacy, I, I, I guess that's the hard part. You know, in terms of these politicians, that everyone has to really tread on eggshells, and that's why when we talk, uh, you know, we do mention uh, His Holiness Hazrat comments. You know, he's not beholden, you know, by any stretch, you know, from a political perspective, and that's why I think he speaks openly. You know, he talked about holding Muslims to a higher standard. Of course, you know, we've said that, but equally, um, his comments um, in regards to the Israeli military, 
Um, His Holiness very openly said, whatever injustice and cruelty Hamas has committed, the response to that or war should have been restricted to Hamas. However, the indiscriminate response of the Israeli government is extremely dangerous, and it seems that this conflict will not end here. In fact, it cannot be imagined how many innocent women, children, elderly and civilians will lose their lives. The Israeli government suggested it will destroy Gaza, and to this end, they've carried out severe and overwhelming bombardment. They have turned the city to dust. Now, the most recent development is that the Israeli government is telling a million or so people to leave northern Gaza immediately. Obviously, this was, you know, sort of almost two weeks ago now uh, that these comments were made. And, you know, we've seen how things have panned out. But I I mean, I think the thing that that, that really has changed you know, from from what I've seen, obviously, historically, this is something that's, you know, that's been going on for years. But. I think now more than ever, the PR, and obviously, Hamza, maybe you can give light to this, from a PR perspective, it seems like Israel really just doesn't care what its global standing looks like anymore. That's my gut. I mean, that, that, that's my read on it. No, I, I, I think, no, I th- look, I think it intensely does. It intensely okay. does. And it tries um, very, very hard, uh, Both both sides do, try very very hard to um frame the conversation and present information in the way that they want now but that do you doesn't think, do you that, think that, that we're talking about them framing it to the general public in the world or just within the circles of influence no i think i think i think all all of that i think they i think the israel i think israeli government has always basically done whatever it was going to do mm-hmm. always and but i think they if they didn't care what anybody thought, I don't think there would be such a big effort to um, present information in the way that they want it presented and to try to present their opinion mm. and their story. And you can just see it from, and I think this is probably, and you know, this is, I think this conflict, uh, one of the things that's so different about this one, I think, is that the level, because of where we are with social media now, mm. I think the level of disinformation, misinformation presented by both sides through um, through various social channels is just off the charts. Yeah. Off the charts. Fake images, fake videos, yeah. videos from uh, other, other atrocities yeah. being from both sides. Just fake information from uh, from uh, government officials, from uh, official, uh, from kind of Palestinian pro-Palestinian sources, from from pro-Israeli sources. Just constant bombardment of misinformation and fake information. And you know, if you're trying, if you're trying to just mm. find out what's going on and trying to come up with a view, kind of in terms of what you think's going on, yeah. it makes it so difficult because every time you see something, you've got to be like, is that is that real? Has that actually happened? Is that happened? Is that right? Is that right? Is that wrong? What is that? But oh, is, no, that's is that something that's being more leveled against what's coming out of Israel as opposed to? I mean, look, the, the Palestinian side of stuff. I mean, you see it on social media pretty readily. You know, I mean, those are. I mean, they look. I mean, they look like the images that are happening as almost live. Yeah, I think. Look, I think when you, when you see, you just got to be really careful on the sourcing, right? Yeah. If you see images coming out of, I don't know, uh, on on the BBC yeah. or on. Um, wherever else whatever other new channel mm. for whatever yeah. and you know it's you'd have hoped it's been better yeah, than yeah, it's legit right. but i think even still i think the bbc got in trouble for using some videos that mm-hmm. actually were being were being you were being presented by individuals on the ground some individuals on the ground right or at least purported to be individuals on the ground yeah. but then actually happened to be from a, another conflict right, right, right i think syria or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and 
<laughs> so my point is, you got you got to be re- if if even kind of uh, media media outlets are struggling, yeah. Then you know what, and 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 this is the debate around the numbers. No one knows the real numbers. Now you can, yeah, you know you can. I think people have got a good feel for them, mm. but that's always the the num. No one knows who to believe on the numbers. You've got it on Israel's claims about the Al Shifa uh, hospital, yes. and you see some of the videos coming out of that and thinking, what on earth? That's not that's that yeah. is pure propaganda that's not mm. that's not legit yeah and you see it on the other side you see you know you, as i say you've seen lots of videos that come out and you go well i can't is that real and you assume it's real and then you know you'll find out later on that it wasn't it was from another conflict or whatever yeah. and so i think you know i think that in this conflict has gone off the scales yeah in terms of being able to believe what's being said and what is actually happening and I think that makes it that makes it even more difficult to come to any sort of opinion, judge things, because both sides know that they need international support. Yeah. <laughs> and so therefore the kind of amount of propaganda, let's say, being pushed out is incredible. And you have to be very, very um uh smart and kind of on your toes to and question yourself and ask those questions when you see stuff. Yeah. And I'm not saying everything but I think, you know, it's incumbent on all of us not to just assume that what we're seeing on Twitter, on TikTok or wherever is true. Uh, and I think we have to, you know, unfortunately, that is the state of the world that we live in now. You, you, and it's incumbent on all of us to really be rigorous and ha- ask ourselves those questions, ask the question, do a bit more research when you see something to check it's right or it's real or not. Uh, that part I agree on, uh, you know, in terms of source information and what have you. But just playing the devil's advocate, look, looking at the broad situation, I think it's it's pretty openly accepted in the world that the Israeli response to what has happened there's a lot more killing that's been done by them. There's no doubt about oh, it, right? Oh, totally, totally, totally. Oh, yeah, totally. I don't think you're... Ab- sorry, that's absolutely right. I don't yeah. think anyone's questioning the mm. the um, uh, the level of... Yeah. The level of bombardment, right? Yeah. No one is no one is questioning that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely not. Not questioning that. I think it's just some of the other things that when some of the arguments start coming up mm. and... Um, or comments translations uh these kind of things um i think that uh, if we if we move away from the actual you know the rights and wrongs of, of actually what's happened there uh, the reaction that we're seeing we're, we're you know we're born and bred here in the uk you know the uk government is part of our dna uh, the uk is um you know and the government that governs us is key and important uh, to what we do and i think some of the reactions that we've seen you know and i'm talking from you know a muslim perspective right when you identify uh, as such, that you feel that there is a little bit of a double standard. I mean, some of the things that we've seen, I mean, two points just to, that, that I picked up on this week. One was the autumn statement. The opening part of the UK domestic autumn statement was a, um, you know, a statement on the plight of Israel, you know, giving them support. That was number one. Secondly, the other thing I, I saw recently, uh, I think it was two days ago, was that Wembley will no longer light the colours of the arc in terms of any atrocities that are happening. So what happened with Ukraine, well and good. You know, they did what they wanted, you know, support was there. I remember seeing, um, you know, uh, Manchester City play Everton and they both had Ukrainian players on both sides. They met, you know, it was an emotional moment. It's a humanitarian perspective, right? Um, But now it's like, okay, guys, we're stepping back. 
And it's like, okay, so you it was it was good enough to have an opinion then, and what you can't have an opinion now, or you can't show sport, you know, through sport, you can't throw that. And then that's those are the sort of thing where you think, you know, it, there is a double standard, or it, it very it looks like there is without it being said. Yeah, definitely, I, I totally agree with that. There's, um, I think with, uh, <clears throat> I think we've all felt that over the years with various conflicts being asked. Mm. You know, it's it's like you know every Muslim being asked to condemn ISIS. It's like, what's God, yeah. what's God do with me, mate? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think that's all. I think that's been the case here for a long, you know, a long, long time. Sadly, I think with um, with Israel Palestine, I think the the. I think the history and the UK's history and the UK's role in the establishment of Israel, mm. you know, back at back in uh, 1947 or whatever it was, mm. the UK's role in that I think means that um, the UK government always feels that it has to kind of say so. And I think I I imagine that the that that is one of the reasons for. It. I'm not saying it's a acceptable reason or a just reason, but I imagine that that is always you know at its heart. Mm. You know, at the heart, this conflict started on whether you think it was just or not. Um, that how the manner in which Israel was established back in 1947 and the UK, the mm. UN, the West played a absolutely yeah. fundamental integral integral part in that and yeah. therefore you know the positions they have to take to some extent all try all track back to then yeah yeah i guess i guess that the yeah, there there is a stance that has to be taken um um but yeah it's just i guess when you see you know it's um it's almost a one-sided mm. you know, response and, and that's that's where the disappointment occurs because i think we have to fall on the side of justice not on the side of you know where your you know allegiances lie or your political sport comes from or your monetary sport comes from you know financially mm -hmm. it's a better decision to make when it comes to you know loss of life i think that's where you know justice has to prevail and that's what you know his holiness yep. the leader of the muslim community always focuses on um you know and, and guides us in that light and uh, you would hope that you don't want this to become you know a religious war you know that that's what you don't want it to become because then you embolden you know so many nations. You know there's there's very few things I think that actually actually unite Muslims globally, but the the Palestine issue is definitely one of those. And you've seen that reaction, you know, globally. I think in terms of the marches that you see, you know, whether media downplays them or not, you know, there's a significant number of people ready to you know. Um, nail their um, you know sort of colours to the mast so to speak you know and that support is definitely there because they're seeing such injustice and double standards you can understand the frustration mm. no, I totally frustration agree. where that identification comes from no I totally agree so yeah no so that's it's a hard thing and I think obviously um, you know we, we just hope and pray for the absolute very best you know for humanitarian um, issues that are there and, and the senseless loss of life that we're seeing um, perhaps more so uh, you know that that's happened you know since this conflict has kicked off and, and really flared up so we hope and pray for the absolute best in that scenario moving on Hamza where should we go next in terms of well the other big story again is a it's, it's not a it's not a, a happy story sadly but it's again we've seen a, a flare-up for the first time though in dublin in ireland and people may have seen this on the on the tv read about it it's, it's big news um some big riots happening in du in dublin mm. um uh basically the the far right um 
looting, destroying shops, attacking people. Uh, and essentially it was in response to, and it's a strange response, but it was in response to some school knife attacks uh, where three children and a school assist, care assistant worker yeah. were were um, were attacked. Mm. Uh, and I mean, what's being what's being written, what's being said is that these are, these riots are a response to that, are a response to the inc- and what they and um, because of the nature of the tax being ca- being um, uh, carried out by uh, immigrants, right? Um, that there's been a increase in immigration into Ireland over the last decade. Yeah, probably for the first time in the country's history, where where rather than the Irish emigrating out to other countries, mm. actually what you've started to see is a huge increase in immigrant in an immigration going into Ireland, predominantly Dublin. Yeah, uh, and as we've seen in many areas of the world, when you get that. Um, for the first time, um, there's been a reaction, and apparently this has been bubbling for a while. And the far right have used this um, this knife attack uh, to really kick off, mm-hmm. uh, and you're seeing a lot and a lot of destruction uh, in Dublin for the first time, and I think in my lifetime, anyway. Yeah, and no, it's interesting as well the makeup. I, I read that the in terms of the immigration again, it's this time it's actually not so much of a Muslim issue. It's actually uh, immigration has come from India, Brazil, Philippines, and Nigeria. Mm. So I guess this is more. I mean, the, the the Irish. I mean, we talked about you know Palestine and, and Israel earlier. I mean, the island situation you know has always been you know a hotbed in terms of their own identity as well, right? Northern Ireland, Republic yeah. of Ireland, that type yeah, yeah, of and and this is the first time I guess that it's not to do it's not to mm. do with that split. Yeah, it's to do with what's happening in Dublin, and I think for a long time because again because of the history of the Irish, you know, immigrating out to the UK, to America, to you know wherever you know wherever else, there's just mm. a long history of immigration out of Ireland, and obviously. The, uh, you know, not just the people leaving, but the, the people still there have lots of connections to those people who have left. Yeah. And when the Irish left, you know, they were often attacked, vilified in those countries mm. that arrived in. So I think, yeah. you know, you got the famous no dog, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish yeah. in London. Um, and back in the day, you also had similar types of things in America. Mm. And because of that, um, because of the way that the Irish were received when they left, mm. there was for a long time a feeling in the country that when people came to Ireland they would not act in that way right. that they would be hospitable that they would be mm-hmm. they, they would have their arms open they knew if there was a country that knew how people who knew how it felt mm. to be treated so badly when they left their country and to get entered a new one yeah. it was the Irish and therefore they didn't want you know they actively did not want to be those people they mm. knew how it felt they knew what it meant they they didn't want that for other people yeah and so for a long time um, you know the, the the far right and the right in Ireland didn't have that strength. They didn't have that power. There was lots of immigration coming into the country, but it was welcomed. And it, but from a from a financial perspective, they offered lower corporation tax. Mm-hmm. You know, you had a lot of you know big American companies in particular headquartered in Ireland now. You know, so I guess I think that's part and parcel of it. No, isn't it? if you're inviting people in with good financial incentives, you know, corporation tax and what have you, naturally there's going to be some immigration. Yeah, and you follow, know, right? and you know, with all these things, why do people leave a country? Because mm. there aren't opportunities. Yeah. You had the famine. Yeah. There was there was very tough poverty. Mm. Things have changed. Ireland yeah. is now a yeah a destination 
country, a country that is prosper that is prosperous, that is safe, that is yeah. that is you know generally was seen as you know highly welcoming mm. and with opportunities, as you say, big job opportunities, lots of international corporations yeah. working there, prosperous economy, growing quickly, part of the EU. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> correct. And yeah, yeah, so, and what happens when you have a country a dynamic like that? Yeah. People don't leave anymore. Yeah. Firstly, people yep. stay. Yep. They don't want. They don't need to immigrate somewhere else for more opportunities. So they sure. stay. And what happens to the people elsewhere? They start saying, actually, do you know what's better than going to France or somewhere? Yeah. Let's go to Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in a sense, what's happened is is that immigration has has. Um, has just uh, rocketed over the last decade, yep. 20 years or so, mm-hmm. in Ireland. And the population is coming to terms with those same dynamics and challenges that you know countries across the world, across the West, prosperous countries across the world have had to deal with over the last 50 years, which is, you know, it's not them versus us. Yeah, there are commonalities. We're better if we integrate everybody. There are opportunities for everyone. This is better for all of us. Mm. Um, but you know, obviously, there are some people that are never going to think like that. And some people will use anything as an excuse yeah. for rioting and looting, and mm. who don't have opportunities. So, I just thought it's a it's a really interesting kind of development for the country. And um, and I hope they're able to kind of sort it out and and manage it in a way that, let's say, the Dutch haven't been able to. And we can come yeah. on to that in a minute. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, th- th- the thing is, when the fallout stuff is, you see that you know people want Conor McGregor to run for president. You know, you you you, you, you literally want to fight a fighter in place. Um, but I mean, in certain ways as well. I mean, I think. The Irish, as you said, I think they have a certain empathy with what's happening, the way they were treated, you know, historically. And I think, you know, they were very one of the very few parliaments who did motion, you know, to talk about expelling, you know, the Israel embassy from their country. You know, they, I guess, you know, in certain ways, they do feel sort of a sort of a, almost an empathy, a sympathy, and you know, almost a kindredness uh, to what's happening, or you know, being treated badly by, you know, um, you know, higher ups, basically. Yeah, they always no, well. They always have, and you know, you have this um, long history as well. So I think you would have seen it at the at the Celtic games. Obviously, yeah. Celtic, uh, the football club in Scotland, mm. have a very close af- uh, atta- affiliation to the Celts in Ireland, yeah, uh, and the Catholics in Ireland. And uh, what did you see at lots of Celtics games? Palestinian flags everywhere yeah. uh, as a show of support for the for the Palestinians. I think yeah. that was one of the ones where they tried to ban them, didn't they? Well, so they and banned the next them from game, the they were games. even more or something. No, so what they did is they went, they had a Champions League game in, I think it was Atletico Madrid, and they yeah. went to an away game, and that's where they did it. You know, and then it was like Palestinian flags everywhere and everything. Right. So they couldn't be stopped in, in an away ground. Um, probably can be um, in, in home ground. It's, it's unfortunate. I mean, I mean, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Liverpool fan. You know what? You know, big fan of Liverpool. I am, but you know, they, they, you know, people were, you know, desperately unhappy that you know that they weren't allowed to, you know, take flags into the stadium. They, they said, sorry, we don't, you know, we, we banned flags, Palestinian flags from being brought in. So you know, it, it's strange how some people take stance. But you're right, uh, Celtic in, in that regard, you know, that Irish link and what have you. It's it's heartening sometimes to see support from someone who's you know, you know, from a completely different background, mm. but can see the injustice in humanity, you know, in certain situations 
Yeah, I think that I think that I, I think from what I've read, there was a a, a very close relationship between mm -hmm. the resistance movements in Ireland mm -hmm. and uh, Palestine, all the way back, dating yeah. all the way back. Uh, and when the Irish peace uh, uh, accords were signed and agreed, I think there was lots of discussions again with the uh, with the Irish and the Palestinians in terms of why why did the Irish agree to the settlement that they were given? Yeah. Why was it acceptable? What compromises did they make? How did yeah. they get there? How did they get their heads around it? Because I think in order for there to be peace, both mm. sides inevitably have to compromise. Sure. And in a sense, both. At that point, both sides, this was both in Ireland and will need to be the case in uh, Palestine and Israel, both sides will feel that they are not getting what they deserve, what they want. And at some point, at some point, people have to say, we should compromise here for the sake of long-term safety, security and peace. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think yeah, and it's 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 one of those where I think let's just hope the roadmaps you know that have been used you know can be used in this scenario uh, to arrive at a, you know a peaceful and a quick uh, settlement uh, you know on the Israeli uh, Palestine uh, you know genocide you know, yeah. as people are calling it. And we mentioned it a few minutes ago, but there was the Dutch elections yes. that just happened. Yep. Again, another kind of staggering result um, wouldn't have been predicted if, a few years ago. He was seen as a fringe kind of lunatic type figure from the far right. Gert Wilders, the anti-Islamic uh, political figure in Holland, has become the biggest party in the parliament following the election. He hasn't won an outright majority mm. in countries across Europe, including Holland. Uh, there's a proportional re um, uh, representation vote, and therefore you only get, uh, and therefore there's a lot more parties who have numbers of seats, and then they have to form together to form coalitions. So, but Gert Wilders has his party, the PVV party, has 37 seats out of 150. Yep. So that's 37 seats out of 150. Clearly, in the UK, in order to form a government, you've got to get much closer to a majority. But the way it works in these other countries is that that's never going to be the case, and so. So then you have to start doing deals with other parties similar to you, mm. give them seats in your cabinet. But you as the biggest party uh, are given the first crack at trying to put together that government. So he's been given the nod to, to, to try to put together that government and try to bring parties on side. He has 37 seats out of 150. So right. clearly he needs to get uh, support from uh, in order to get up to 71. Uh, sorry, 76. So once he can get that number, then he obviously can form a government and he's going to be trying to do that very hard. What's quite interesting, obviously, is he's clearly the far right. Uh, I mean, he's, he's openly anti-Muslim, right? Uh, openly anti-Muslim. Um, but how has that gained so much traction in a place like Holland? Holland's quite ethnically diverse. I mean, you look at the football team, right? They're, it's a real mixture of, you know, of, yeah. of you know African origin, French origin. You know, there's a real mixture. You yeah. know, how has that happened? Look, I, 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 I look, I don't know, but mm. you know what's what's clear is um it and it, i think it's similar to some of the conversations you hear in france about the lack of integration yeah uh, the, the the lack of uh, in their view uh, the arguments they make is the lack of the ability of people from that religion to assimilate into the culture mm. of 
Holland. We all know this is rubbish, but yeah. this is the argument that's made. So, and then you have really weird policies, as if these are going to change anything. It's just, mm-hmm. You know, you can't. It, part of his manifesto is if these are like huge, you know, policies that were going to change anything about anyone's lives in Holland. Yeah. Uh, no headscarves to be worn in yep. government buildings. Yeah. You know, what, <laughs> yeah. What's the impact of that, right? Exactly. But he has to try and put together a party and it'll be interesting to see whether he can because mm. the other parties are well within their right to say, we're not going to support you as prime yeah. minister. You're having a laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see again in this horrible, murky world of politics who throws away their their values and their mm. uh, their beliefs in order to get a seat at the uh, at the cabinet table. Mm. Yeah. No, I, mean, I guess from a from a, a European perspective, I mean, it's just the, I guess the worry is, is is this is this something that's spreading, you know, uh, in in Europe because obviously France kind of leads the way in that regard. Mm. Um, but um, you know, even you know they've called for a stop to what's happening, you know, in Israel and Palestine. So even they see the unjust. <laughs> Uh, you know, in, in what's happening, but yeah, I mean, just coming back to, I mean, is is that really a wave that we will see in, uh, you know, in the rest of Europe? It'd be, it'd be sad to see if, if if politicians are running on the anti-Muslim card. Oh yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it will. It's re- it is very sad, and I think you, I think we will see it in certain countries, won't we? The question is how long it takes to get that support and whether it maintains and. Uh, and the form that it picks up. I mean, I guess he's always had this kind of personality cult around him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been building for a while. I hadn't actually seen that, you know, this was predicted, if that makes sense. I hadn't read much. I mean, maybe yeah. I missed it, but I hadn't read much that this was kind of on the cards. Mm-hmm. It's been written up as a bit of a shock. Yeah, that's correct. Um, rather than something that the polls all pointed to and, you know, people expected it to be happening. And you would have thought if that was the case that it would have been written about for the last few months, you know, that he's on course to do this. or whatever. Yeah. You, you, We all know the types of commentary that you start to read coming out of these yeah. elections. Um, and you didn't, you didn't have this. You didn't have it here. So... I don't know. Maybe it's a one-time shock. Hopefully, it can just be isolated to uh, to Holland, and ho- hopefully, what you know, often with these people, once they're in power, you can see how useless they are, mm. um, <laughs> and <laughs> and how <laughs> but, I, I mean, how just, useless their ideas are, and I mean, just they get booted us, out. Just to give it some color as well, it's not. I mean, uh, the anti-Muslim side is one element of it, but some of his other policies, uh, he wishes to cancel aid, um, overseas aid budget, cut EU funding, reduce the number of foreign students coming in and he promises to have 14 year olds treated the same as adults in criminal cases what cut taxes provide 10,000 more police officers and show zero tolerance for quote unquote street scum and bring back the controversial black pete character i'm not sure what that part is but just goes that, to show uh, you that is of one of those oh uh, that is <laughs> oh my god so that is the uh, kind of blackface kid children's character right. that they had in Holland many, many years ago right, right, that right. for obvious reasons kind of was scrubbed out yes. in that they just, that character was was um, stopped being used yeah. because, well, for very obvious reasons, right? I mean, it's just racist character. Yeah, I mean, it's the same in, in the UK because they used yeah, to yeah, be yeah, uh, exactly. in Gollywog, right? Yeah, that, yeah, was, yeah, exactly. that was a character yeah. on Jam. I yeah, think yeah, exactly. Was, Ridiculous, no right? Used, so get right? rid of it. It doesn't yeah. affect anyone. What, yeah. what the problem is... And one of his policies is Diversive, to bring that back. No, no. It's just... 
Yeah, exactly. Um, it's inflammatory, right? It's... Well, exactly. But I mean, I mean, sadly, it is the way that politics seems to be going, right? In that you've got these characters who can just be outlandish, you know, stupid, not you know, outlandish, sensationalist, just say stuff. People like people like it. You have it a bit over here. You know, you've got you had it in Argentina. I'm not sure people saw that, but you have got this crazy right wing figure in Argentina who's mm-hmm. just been elected, who's literally runs runs around the streets with a chainsaw, saying, "I'm going to tear down government. I'm going to cut back dov- government." Yep. And he's complete lunatic, um, kind of laughing stock figure a few day few years ago. And now yep. he's the pre- and now he's a president. No, but but you say that now. I'm, I'm, I was in the states uh, just a couple of months ago. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, people of ethnic minorities who are actively and will vote and want Trump to come back into power. They, they feel that Biden has been an absolute, you know, sort of uh, lame duck. He hasn't delivered on his policies. And they would much rather have someone who's, uh, for want of a better word, you know, actually, you know, is a doer. <laughs> Now I know I know he's very strange, but yeah, you know, and Trump really does divide opinion. But that I'm telling you that you know from a, from the perspective of Americans who are born in America but aren't American by uh, yeah, eth- ethnicity, nor are they uh, Republicans. But they see someone like that as a better leader for them in this world that we live in. There you go. I mean that just. Uh... You know that is, you know that's the situation we're in. He's up for charges. He's up for more, uh, you know, criminal charges than ever. He's, I think he's been found guilty of a couple of them, hasn't he? And, Does he look uh, like he's bothered? And his uh, exactly, exactly. And his rate, his polling goes up. I mean, uh, doesn't even attend the, uh, doesn't even engage in the primaries, yep. primary debates. Because what's yep. the point? Yeah, he's got it sewn up. Uh, and and the sad thing is, you see now you see the primaries and people have to act like him. Yes. In order to be successful. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, sadly, this is the way that kind of modern politics seems to be going. You know, the, the cult of the personality mm. doesn't matter what you shock value more than anything. Yeah. Makes some makes for some good clips. People like it. It's crazy. But I think even from an economics perspective, most of the city, uh, you know, in terms of like we're talking about UK, London, but we're even talking about corporate America. Um, you know, the fact that he's talked about, you know, I'll give you rate cuts like you've never seen before. That that was last week's comment. And the fact that, you know, these are sort of things that your Bloomberg apps and what have you, they'll send you those straight away as notifications. But I mean, he's not even but, in power. Yeah, but he's been in power and he didn't deliver it, did he? Well, apparently, that's the first thing he's going to do. But, uh, <laughs> we've seen what happened last time. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's short termism. You know, interest is another concept that we've talked about many a time on this show. Um, but you know, we're almost beholden to that in certain countries, especially with the amount of debt I mean, you know, I money say, that's printed now. I mean, on him, I kind of get it. On the first time, it was a bit of shock value. Mm. Let's see what someone like him can do. He probably won't probably won't be as crazy as he was in campaign mode. Yeah. You know, and then come on, you see what he does, what he can't, what he can do, what he can't do, what he can actually deliver. Yeah, and I mean, uh, so to go back for round two would be would be absolutely extraordinary. I think it's very much on the cards. Genuinely, I think it's very much on the cards. You know, I think next year is obviously quite a pivotal year in the UK and the US for elections. You know, we'll t- touch on that in the in the second half of the show when we touch on the autumn statement and you know perhaps you know is there any way back you know for the Conservatives? I won't say Rishi because he was you know he wasn't an elected leader as such you know, just from within the party. Um, but, you know, does he have any way of turning this around with the Cameron move as well? 
you know, we'll have to wait and see what the outcome is. But I mean, we've seen so many big things happening in the world, so many big geopolitical events. You've talked about Holland, we've talked about obviously Israel and, and Gaza is sort of the black cloud over the whole thing. But what happens in the UK, you know, in the US is, is going to be paramount as well to the world we live in and the, the type of people we want in power now. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree. I mean, the, the, the UK still, you know, the, well, I think it was interesting because, you know, in the UK, post Boris Johnson, I yeah. think people were kind of like, right, that was a bit of a clown. That was, we kind of tried our cult of personality. He was a, he was a bit of a clown show. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. let's not, let's not do that again. Yeah. And I think we also are lucky here in that our system means that the MPs basically put forward people. Yes. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> from who have already been voted as yeah. MP. Yeah. So the the MPs themselves put forward the mm. people who they think should be leader. Yes, and in a sense that is a very useful check. Yes. in our in our system True. because it means that the the lawmakers, the decision makers, can say I think that guy will act, can actually do this job yep. rather than let's say everybody saying well that that guy seems quite funny let's put him up. <laughs> which, which, which is how I think the whole Trump experiment started in America, right? Yeah. Let's put this guy up. He wasn't expected to win, and then he won, right? Yeah, and, and even voting for him, as I say, I think there was, was a bit of let's just try it. I think there was a bit of that with Boris as well, right? Let's just mm. try. Let's just try it. Yeah. You know, he's a charismatic guy, smart guy. Let's just see what. Let's see what he can do, and yeah. then we'll we'll saw. <laughs> What he what he could do, yeah. and I'm, that's why I'm surprised that you know, you could see what Trump's done and what he and and more importantly also what he what he couldn't do, mm. what he couldn't do. Yeah. Um. So anyway, we shall see. I think I think I I mean yeah, yeah I think that's that's the way the world is heading. I think America is definitely heading in that direction. You know whether Biden's even around to contest the the election, who knows? Um. But we'll have to wait and see. Um. But yeah, I mean it just goes back to when you see real true diplomats you know like you know perhaps obama speaking now you know you get you get a caliber of leader which perhaps now you're not seeing that and it's you see polarized caricatures almost you know in power and i think that's where the the dangerous element of this lies um and that's why i think you know uh his holiness just again has always told us to focus on prayers you know and and hope that the better situations arrive in the world and and peace is chosen. It's not just about, you know, um, sort of segmentizing, um, you know, and polarizing communities and, you know, becoming almost, you know, patriotic, you know, and non-human. So I think that's what we have to look at. Um, But we'll return in our second part of the show. We'll look at uh, more domestic matters. Please join us after the break. ولله الأسماء الحسنى فادعوه بها يا يا الرحمن
people are asking, Who is the gracious God? Gracious God is He who has created the sun and the moon for our benefit. The sun with which human life and the life of vegetation is associated. Through the attribute of Rahman, God grants without being asked. Can one say that the sun or the earth was created on account of one's deeds? Rahman is a being that grants beneficence of the kind that man does not have the capacity of giving. It is by virtue of being gracious that all creation receives God's universally prevalent beneficence. Prophets of God summon people to the gracious God for people's own good and not for any recompense. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, states, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the perfect manifestation of Rahman because his beneficence is incomparable. Being the perfect man, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had this quality in him more than anyone else and an ordinary person too should aspire to the paradigm, deriving luminosity from the sun of 1400 years ago. In this age, the promised Messiah on whom be peace has further spread the light, the light of the promised Messiah on whom be peace is from that same gracious God. The quality of Rahmaniyat is pure favor and munificence and is not caused by any good act and is not the fruit or reward of anything. Despite humanity rejecting God, His Rahmaniyat remains overwhelming. If it were not for this divine quality, majority of humanity would have been destroyed because of its misdemeanors and sins. Despite rejecting God, people are asking, Who is the gracious God? The Holy Prophet foretold of a Prophet, one which would be the second coming of Jesus Christ, a Mahdi, a reformer, who would revive Islam and lead it forward into a new era of success. The Holy Prophet requested his companions to convey his salam to this reformer of the new age. He said, When you hear the advent of the Mahdi, then enter into his fold, even if you have to walk on snow by crawling and creeping to reach him. The role and sole purpose of this subordinate prophet was made clear. He would revive Islam, unite all its sects, and establish a caliphate which would strengthen Islam and lead it forward into a new age. I give you the glad tidings of Mahdi, who will be raised in my Ummah at a time of digression and distress of people. He will fill the earth with equity and justice as it is filled with oppression and violence. But how could this promised man recognize 
that he was the one. It could only be through a revelation from God, and this revelation was received by the noble and humble Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad in 1891 in the small town of Qadian to the east of Damascus. It is now the duty of every Muslim to come forward and accomplish the appeal of the Holy Prophet to join in to the fold of this Prophet, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad the Reformer, the Mahdi, the Promised Messiah. I call to witness God Almighty who holds my life in His hand that compared to every other soul, He has gifted me with overwhelmingly greater ability and access to the understanding and the deeper wisdom of the Holy Quran. If any of the Maulvis who oppose me in response to my repeated invitations had attempted to outshine me in the exposition of the Holy Quran, God would have most certainly frustrated his attempts and exposed his ignorance. Hence, the understanding of the Quran which has been granted me is a sign of Allah, the Glorious, and I have full trust in Allah's grace that soon the world will begin to see that I am true in this claim. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Uh, it's uh, 11.08 on the 25th of November and you're joined by myself, Shazilone, and my colleague in the studio, Hamza Vanderman. Uh, we've been touching on, uh, obviously, the geopolitical state of the world, in particular uh, Israel and Palestine, and also looked at the recent Dutch elections. Um, so, um, moving on to domestic matters, we had the autumn statement from the Chancellor, Conservative Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. What were the highlights and takeaways? So I think we can start off by going through um, some of the key measures that he uh, brought in, that he announced. Um, and then maybe what's more interesting is what people uh, interpreted this meaning in terms of when uh, the election is likely to be um, and what the uh, what the party is like, what the Conservative Party is likely to uh, run on and campaign on. So a few of the headline policy changes that came in. So national insurance was cut by 2%. Yep. Uh, so a bit of a uh, giveaway there for uh, people take home a bit take a bit ho- uh, home a bit more money every month living wage increase um, so that is the minimum living wage that you can be paid increased from 10.42 to 11 pounds 44 so increase of one pound um, so another small giveaway benefits rise with inflation at 6.7 percent so benefits rose with uh, September's inflation number rather than October's inflation number which again was seen as a bit of a, a bit of a win uh, new crackdowns benefit so uh, on the reverse of the increase in the actual payments was uh, a new drive to make sure that uh, payments are only given to those who are unable to find work uh, and are and can de- demonstrably show that they have fa- tried to find work. So um, people who do not find work within 18 months, I think the payments then come down. They don't comply with the new rules uh, and there's a drive to get people more people working from home. State pensions to rise at 8.5%. Uh, so that is in line with the triple lock commitment. So yep. he's been shown to be maintaining that. Obviously, uh, the pension pensioners are big Tory uh, vote winner. So uh, an important policy at this point to show them. Uh, 
tax breaks for businesses. So the full expensing uh, allowance that uh, was previously announced has been extended. And that means that you can uh, uh, businesses can expense the full amount of mm-hmm. any uh, capital investment that they make rather yeah. than previously, I think it being at 50 or 75 percent. Yeah. Um, but that's gone up to the full amount, which obviously saves money on the amount that you then uh, have to pay tax on. Um, uh, so that was about it. What wasn't in, there was lots of speculation in the run-up uh, to the autumn statement that uh, income tax would change. Yep. That hasn't, that's yep. uh, that's remained flat. And um, there was also a lot of commentary about whether inheritance tax would be reduced, that there was no mention of inheritance tax. I guess with inheritance tax, it doesn't make as big a difference in terms of like to the general population, right? I mean, the haves and have-nots kind of scenario. Yes, but people, are, um, people get very excited about it and people get very animated about it because um, there are, you know, on one side, people think mm. that this is just a way of maintaining generational wealth, i.e. Um, locking in wealth to a family. If one, sure. once one person has uh, kind of made it and made money, if you reduce insure, inheritance tax, basically that family yeah. is kind of set up for generations and generations mm-hmm. just because one person did quite well. So it's a tax on wealth, not in, in, on, on income. Yeah. On the other side, so uh, you know, there's a vocif- vociferous argument that... Um, uh, inheritance tax doesn't make sense because the individual has already paid tax on their income. And the individual has already yeah. paid tax on their income. Why, when he dies, does he have to? He or she have to pay tax again on wealth that has already been taxed? Yeah. So people don't like that. Mm. So it's quite a strong kind of um, uh, uh, points on those uh, taxes that people like to make and reducing. And the other thing with inheritance tax is that it is aspirational. So people feel that they are uh, looking after their children and their grandchildren through it. And therefore, people also look at a reduction in inheritance tax and think uh, that's an, that, that, that could affect me, even if it wouldn't. Even if it wouldn't affect you, people often assume it will, and therefore people like it. So it is seen as a bit of a vote winner, and it's also probably a policy that would see them create a bit of space between them and Labour if things look too similar. Mm. They can create a bit of space because it's a policy that Labour will never uh, get on board with. So um, anyway, they haven't done it. They may be holding it back for a kind of pre-election giveaway. So if you do your budget in uh, winter budget March, do your budget in March. And then you have an election a few months after that. Then you, yeah. need your, you need to have a few election giveaways in your next round. And so maybe income tax and inheritance tax have been held back uh, for right. that moment. Okay, so we think that this is a sort of a step in the right direction, essentially, uh, towards trying to woo uh, voters, you know, with the next budget, essentially. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, look, let's be realistic. The Tories trail massively in the polls. Yep. And... Um, they need to keep some stuff back for another <laughs> fiscal yeah. event and therefore they couldn't give everything here so there were a few giveaways I don't think it really moved the needle at no. all I think you know if you look the reaction to it both in terms of kind of positivity and then on what it made what difference it made to polling I think it was almost nothing yeah. um, so you know it, it's more it's probably more a budget that uh, sorry an awesome statement that teased them up to enable yeah. them to put forward a budget that maybe does have bigger giveaways yeah. uh, in them. Um, and so in that sense, you know, it's difficult <coughs> for them um, because no one's really listening anymore, are they? 
Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think what overshadowed, and obviously we saw the, um, you know, sort of uh, removal of Suella Braverman as well, you know, post her comments uh, in regards to the Met Police and the, yeah. the process that were being carried out. So I think those sort of headlines have not sort of helped you know Rishi Sunak in terms of you know trying to settle things and I think that's you know just coming back to what we briefly mentioned the move to bring Cameron back in potentially you know being an ex-statesman having dealt you know more on a diplomatic basis uh, perhaps he can handle more on the international front and try and you know sort of leave Rishi to you know to try to handle domestic matters and, and essentially vote winning yeah I think that's right and you know they um <clears throat> I think the budget is one thing, the economy is one thing, and obviously after Liz Truss yeah. and the carnage of Liz Truss, mm. I think it's almost like he just needs, he wants to show a bit of stability. I think in his five pledges, one of them is growing the economy and the other is halving inflation. And so he probably thinks, I just need, on the economy, I just need to be seen as sensible, uh, steady, and a safe pair of hands. And then I think the actual vote winners are going to be more on issues around uh, uh, um, uh, policing and home affairs. And then secondly, on um, and what actually had a bigger impact on him was the day after the autumn statement was the very, very, very high immigration numbers again. And I think especially on the right of the party, especially in kind of um, those traditional Tory seats, you know, I think he's going to have to come up with something to show that he can get immigration uh, under control. I mean, that's what the Tories have been talking about for 12, 13 years, however long they've yep. been power, is getting immigration under control. And it seems that no one's been able to do that, whether you're in the EU, whether you're not in the EU, whether it's small boats, not small boats, where, you know, the immigration numbers are just really, really high. And I think that they're going to have to be able to show a plan on that which isn't just gimmicks like Rwanda's clearly just a gimmick hasn't even been able to you know um, be implemented at all yeah and I think people are saying well you know you guys can't do anything why would we trust you to do anything on this so I think the economy is about keeping that safe and uh, sensible and not looking like he's just out there spending lots and lots of money and Mm. unaffordable tax cuts and all the rest of it he just has to be sensible but he's going to have to come up with some something bold on the other matters, I think. But in light of what we were talking about earlier, in terms of you know you know sort of big polarizing type of characters and what have you, is is this what UK politics you know requires at this you know time? Perhaps in terms of the Conservative Party, I mean I've heard sort of you know I mean some people may say it's outlandish, but some people are saying that you know the reason um, Suella Braverman made those comments was so that she could be ousted and to return potentially uh, you know as a leadership candidate. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. It's, it's I guess her calculation is that she wants to be the next leader of the party mm. and maybe she doesn't mind whether that's before an election well you know before an election or after she's probably thinking it doesn't really matter but what mm. she doesn't want to be is associated with what's going on right and so I think if you don't want to if you if, if you want to be leadership mm. after the election you need to be able to yeah. turn around and yeah. go, well, you know, not my fault. I wasn't involved in any of these rubbish policies. Yeah. 
uh, you know, kind of yeah, disassociate, disassociate yourself. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I imagine that's what she's doing. The funny thing is, it's all her policies that she couldn't enact. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got Boris Johnson out today writing uh, op-eds, I think, in the mail about, mm. you know, measures he would implement to get immigration down. It's like, yeah. come on, mate. <laughs> you know, you're prime minister for however long. Exactly. You know, you're having a laugh. Like, yeah. it's literally, is this satire? Yeah. So... I, the reality is that's a problem as the Tories have. They've been in power mm. for over a decade. Yeah. They any problems that they point to, <laughs> yeah, are, yeah. Their, exactly. are the problems of their own making. making. Yeah, correct. And so, what can you do? You just they've got to come up with some policies that people believe in, that people think will work. Um, and but I think you're going to have that jostling where the polls are still going to be bad and then people start mm. jostling for positions after yeah. an election. Yeah. And then that's why you get the kind of Suella stuff. And that's probably why he thought bring in um, David Cameron because he probably yeah. thought at least he's a guy who'll just get on with the job. He's not going to be doing any sort of manoeuvring. He's Correct. not going to be doing any politicking. He's yeah. done that. He's just going to actually do the job. Do the job. Mm-hmm. And so in some respect, I think that's what it was more about. Lots of yeah. downsides to that. You know, having an ex-PM as your foreign minister, yeah. he always looks more statesman than Rishi when they're together. Yeah. He's a former PM. He's much bigger than Rishi is well there's no getting away from it right just the dynamics of it look strange yeah the relationship was probably at the time of david cameron bossing around who rishi at the moment at the time would have been like a junior treasury minister or something they would have just been bossing him around that doesn't stop overnight yeah and um but you know on the flip side rishi probably thought the last thing i want is another politicking maneuvering potential leadership candidate in here and so let me just let me bring him back in so essentially, I think what we're saying is we're looking at a Labour government come November of next year. Essentially, that's I think what we're so. Held I th- on with what, what? What do we expect in that regard? I think, do you think? I think that's right. Though the I think what is still up for grabs is how big that majority is, right? And whether and whether um, it, it is even a majority. So they okay. might need something to do something with the Lib Dem- Liberal okay. Democrats. Okay. Democrats, yeah, um, they may not, but well, I don't think you're going to have a position where the Tories are the largest party. So I think people are basically counting on Labour being the biggest party. Yep. The question is, will they have a massive majority and be able to do kind of whatever they want? Yeah, or will they have a very small majority, uh, or any majority at all, and have to pander to either the Liberal Democrats or the left wing of their party in order to get votes uh, to get votes through, or possibly even the SNP need votes from the SNP in order to get things through? And I think you know, depending on that, depending on what happens there, you're going to see a very different type of policies coming out. You know, if you've got a Labour. Labour Party with a huge uh, majority, then steer karma, steer uh, sorry, Keir steer Starmer. <laughs> Keir Starmer is going to put put up the policies, the kind of centrist policies, I guess, that he uh, believes in, and knowing that all his left wing uh, MPs can vote against that policy, but it's still going to go through. So in some respects, he won't have to uh, he won't have to man- maneuver himself around that. A bit like Tony Blair in '97, didn't he? he could just do whatever he wanted, knowing that he had more than enough votes um, for Labour MPs Labour MPs on the left of the party to vote against, and it still go through. If you know, if you've got much smaller majority, then uh, Keir Starmer is going to need their votes. 
and then policy yeah. is going to have to shift to the left a little bit in order to get those things through. Mm. But they're going to. But but look, that that aside, uh, they are going to be constricted by the state of the economy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, state of growth. Absolutely. Uh, what, you know, state of the public finances. A bit like um, you know when uh, David Cameron, George Osborne came in. Yeah. And uh, that you know the famous example of them seeing the George Osborne having a note from the Treasury and it said, "Good luck. There's no money left or something." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I don't think it's going to be a easy period yeah. to govern in because. Mm. You know, growth anemic, interest rates still high. Yes. Um, public finances have been battered due to uh, COVID. Yeah. And the, you know, the investment, the borrowing that was required at the time. Mm. But, you know, it, it's not free money, is it? No, absolutely not. So I think that's, yeah, that's something that they have to juggle with. So it'll be interesting. We'll just see how it goes because, you know, normally... Yeah, the Conservative Party, having been in in power for a decade, is vilified and you know pillared, you know, in these regards. You know, you know, you're meant to be good at running the economy. Look yeah, what's yeah, happening, yeah. etc. But I, I guess sometimes external matters, and more so, I think that the global economy that we live in now as well. It's not just you know you can't just make policies for the UK. There's a big overriding effect. You know what happens in the states now, what happens in the Far East, really does affect us. You know, here in the UK. Yeah, and I think look, the effect of that two weeks of Liz Truss in number ten. Yeah is not going to be forgotten anytime soon. No. And um <laughs> and I think that is a huge that's a huge problem for them. Yeah, no, I think that that period of time that you lost a lot of credibility with yeah. Liz Truss and uh Quasi Quateng or what they did in terms of, you know, it was just it was anti anti economics. It really was it was just totally incorrect. But yeah, I mean, who knows? We'll have to see how that pans out exactly, now. Exactly, exactly. Um uh, but um yeah, so I think uh that's our domestic part covered in the main. Uh, what we'll do is take a short break and then we'll return for the sports section. Please do join us after the break. <laughs> God. Gracious God is He who has created the sun and the moon for our benefit. The sun with which human life and the life of vegetation is associated. Through the attribute of Rahman, God grants without being asked. Can one say that the sun or the earth was created on account of one's deeds? Rahman is a being that grants beneficence of the kind that man does not have the capacity of giving. It is by virtue of being gracious that all creation 
receives God's universally prevalent beneficence. Prophets of God summon people to the gracious God for people's own good and not for any recompense. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, states, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the perfect manifestation of Rahman because his beneficence is incomparable. Being the perfect man, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had this quality in him more than anyone else and an ordinary person too should aspire to the paradigm deriving luminosity from the sun of 1400 years ago in this age the promised messiah on whom be peace has further spread the light the light of the promised messiah on whom be peace is from that same gracious God. The quality of Rahmaniyat is pure favor and munificence and is not caused by any good act and is not the fruit or reward of anything. Despite humanity rejecting God, His Rahmaniyat remains overwhelming if it were not for this divine quality, majority of humanity would have been destroyed because of its misdemeanors and sins. Despite rejecting God, people are asking, who is the gracious God? Writings of the Promised Messiah It should be remembered that God Almighty, by demanding faith in the unseen, does not wish to deprive the believers of certainty of understanding the divine. Indeed, faith is a ladder for arriving at the certainty of understanding, without which it is vain to seek true understanding. Those who climb this ladder surely experience for themselves the pure and undefiled spiritual verities when a sincere believer accepts divine commands and directions for the only reason that God Almighty has bestowed upon him through a righteous bearer. He becomes deserving of the bounty of understanding. That is why God Almighty has established a law for his servants, that they should first acknowledge him by believing in the unseen, so that all the problems they face may be resolved through the bounty of true understanding. But it is a pity that a hasty one does not adopt these ways. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Uh, it's 11.30 on the 25th of November. You're joined by myself, Shaz Alone, and my co-presenter, Hamza Vanderman. Um, we are moving into our sports section and what we'll do is we'll kick off with what's, you know, sort of uh, dominated the last month, which was the Cricket World Cup. Longer than a month, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was five weeks. 50 plus too games. Long, it? it was a very long tournament. But what did you think in general in terms of, I mean, ODI cricket has been, I, I would say on the decline for many many years do we think this as an event kind of reinvigorated it did it i mean there was there was some very close matches some i some. thought i thought overall it went on for way too long 
and yeah. not enough knockout matches and most of the matches were too boring but I get I don't know I think there was some I think that once you got the uh, the sort of uh, the initial group stage out of the way yeah, there's, there's only two more matches so uh, there's only semi, two semis in a final no, uh, no as in, there was, I think that initial group stage and then you had the super eights where everyone was playing everyone yeah right? when everyone played everyone yeah, yeah. and that lasted forever yeah that, that went on for quite a long time and you knew the semi-finalists and there was still about six games to go but then, but no, but, but there were a lot of teams that had you know qualification aspirations up until their last game, almost even like you know, obviously England. England had a howler. <laughs> oh, we, we can start there. We can start there because you're an England fan. Um, how has that gone so I wrong from you know Baz Ball? Yeah. And, you know they were they were they reinvented you know ODI and T20. They won both. Yeah. yeah then yeah. they went into the Test series in Pakistan where they were know, victorious. You know, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. very hard to do. You know, and then came back here, and then kind of, I guess, got a little bit derailed against the Aussies. I mean, they just got bat- they just got battered yeah. every get almost every game. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was re- it's really interesting, as you say. They, uh, I can't, I don't think there can be any arguments that over the last, I don't know, five years, England have, as you you know, you said it, mm. reinvented, pushed on ODI cricket, twenty twenty cricket, and now Test match cricket. Yeah, and um, I don't know. May- maybe it's this thing where they said that uh, before basketball test cricket, that because there'd been so much focus on yeah. changing how ODI cricket and T20 cricket was played, that they took their eye off the ball of test cricket, right? Yeah. And it might be that we're now saying that, well, be- to make up for that, they focused on test cricket for the last two years, right? Yeah. Changed that up. And in doing so, they massively took their eye off the ball on ODI cricket. I don't know. I think I think there's one. The, the, the major thing that I found when I looked at this England bowling attack in, in particular is you've gone from Jofra Archer, who was a, a genuine match winner and bowled the last over of the, you know, the, yeah, the yeah. World Cup final here yeah. against New Zealand. Genuine pace threat. You know, even in the test matches, knocked out Steve Smith, yeah. you know, concussion substitute, you know, real fear factor. And then you have people like Reese Topley yeah, 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 and yeah, these yeah. sort of players. And I think that's where that yeah. venom sort of went out of it. Because when I look at the World Cup in general, I mean, fast bowlers didn't really fare too well. Like Mark Wood is probably England's, England's Pacey Spola. Horace Ralph is probably the same for Pakistan. And they went for big runs. Yeah, yeah. Big runs, you know. I mean, this is maybe the other thing about the... the, And it just just talks to England's poor World Cup is... Mm. um, England are rubbish in India always. Yeah, I mean... I mean, mean, I'm not not saying that's the only reason, but I'm saying... um, Let's say there had been other factors. Let's say this tournament had been in I don't know South Africa. They probably would have done badly, but not as but not as badly. I mean, can't play spin properly, right? Haven't got enough good spinners as well. So you get beaten by teams like Afghanistan pretty easily, actually. Well, yeah, I mean they had four spinners, right? But I mean, look, Adil Rashid is right up there in terms of yeah, you, yeah. Know, you know spinners. So yeah. you know he was a, he's a match winning bowler for England yeah, in yeah. their in their successful campaigns. But is it? But you'd rest are like Reese Topley, aren't they? Yeah, that's the thing, and there, and that doesn't work over there, does it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I don't think express pace or you know, it's just, I mean, aside from the, I mean, the Indian attack, and we'll we'll move on to the, their, mm. uh, you know, the, their their side as well. But I mean, they were 
Yeah, I mean, they were, they were clever bowlers. I mean, Jesprit Bumrah bowled amazingly well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. seam bowling, anytime you get some movement off the track or, you know. But this is this is what I'm saying. It's, to some extent, that's home, it's home, this is home conditions, right? These are bowlers. Yeah. For, you know, if that same England, if this World Cup had been in England, yeah. I'm not saying they would have won it, no. right? And I'm not saying they would have done well, but mm. they would have been done much better. And it probably, people would have gone away saying, oh, we didn't quite do as well as we wanted. But it being in India... <laughs> But I mean, look, IP, I, you know, England players all play in the IPL. They they take home big money from the yeah. IPL. It's not like those conditions are alien alien to them. It's not like they've just rocked up two weeks before and this is the first time they're in India. Yeah, you know, yeah, having maybe, maybe. having curries on their on the, on on off match days. <laughs> it's not the first time they've experienced that side of things, right? So you know, Josh Butler, you know, Ben Stokes. Yeah, these would... guys all play uh, in IPL, so they know the conditions. I, look, I don't know. I don't maybe. know. I don't... Look, the honest thing is, I don't know. I don't know, right? I mean, it went from so high to so low so quickly. I'm just trying to think of some some reasons other than you know, occasionally it all comes crashing down, doesn't it? <laughs> I think. Well, maybe maybe from an age perspective, maybe some of some of the team are are getting a little bit on the older side. I don't know. It's difficult, difficult. Read, Plus, I mean, really. it's difficult to read, isn't it? It's just yeah. sometimes. I, I guess sometimes you just have horror tournaments. Yeah. Yeah, Happen, the momentum's that happens. not with you. It happens, you know. You have a couple of bad games. All of a sudden, mm. you're, um, you know, you're out, you're kind of out of it. Yeah, and momentum's a strange thing, isn't it? Confidence is such a big thing. Have a couple of good games. All of a sudden, you're up. You know, you're up for it. Um, Australia always yeah. win World Cup cricket, so they're always their heads always there. They're like the Germans of football, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, look, look at there. I mean, you talk about momentum, same thing. Like they, they started off on a a losing handle and then just turned it round and then just went on an amazing run. Uh, I th- you know, Australians and World Cup cricket, they just know that they, you know, put them there, 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 and thereabouts at the end. Yeah, they're not going to choke like the South Africans. You know that <laughs> they're gonna. You know they're gonna put together. They're gonna they're gonna give. They, you know, on any given day, they know that they can. They're gonna they're gonna put a, put in a decent shout. They're gonna mess things up massively. Yeah. Um, and that always gives them a chance. And I thought they I thought they played the final. Re- I mean, really, really well. Yeah, I mean, tactically, you know, yeah, I tactically it was spot on. I mean, to win the toss and to put the other yeah. team in. I mean, that was a big call. I mean, generally in World Cups, it's always scoreboard pressure, runs on the board first, and away you go. But he he stuck to the you know conventions of of the conditions and and tactics. Yeah, I mean, he wanted to win it. Yeah, of he course. wasn't defended. But as in as in, it would have been very easy to defensively say, as you said. Mm. Uh, let's bat. Let's bat first. Yep. <clears throat> and may and and then they may you know that that would have been a kind of defensive way of making sure you have, you make a game of it. But yeah, you know, not really. Believe, but what did he think? He said the way we're going to win this game. Now we might get batted, but the way we're going to win this game mm. is to bowl first. Yes. Yeah. And I thought they bowled really, really well. Yeah. I thought they bowled really well, and then they, you know. And they got after it. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, when you look back on the tournament as a whole, I mean, you've got to say, I mean, India were the best team in terms of like performance. Yeah, I mean, of ten out of eleven games. But it's just that old saying that you know you're gonna have a blip at some time of the tournament. There's happened in the final, you know, where you're just not at it. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, some of the some of the cricket that they played and some of the other, I mean, seeing. You know, Kohli, uh, even Roy Sharma in full flight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. just, you know, absolute run machines where, you know, a lot of other teams, you know, kind of struggled. I guess in South Africa, I think Quinton de Kock, he, he had quite, yeah. a, quite a lot of runs on the board, a number of centuries. But 
Yeah, but the best innings of the whole tour was Glenn Maxwell by by Oh, mile. what an innings I that mean, was! What I've never an seen inning. anything bizarre. Like that. Absolutely bizarre. No leg movement. And it wasn't like they were feeding him bowling. No, I mean, on. that was... I mean, in terms of knocks, that, that's. I don't think I've seen a better, better innings. Yeah, yeah. In our, in our life, in my lifetime, that is... Yeah. And also, as you say, the last 85 runs, he couldn't yeah. move his leg. Yeah, basically. Couldn't move, couldn't move his leg. Yeah. And he's not scoring those runs slowly. No. <laughs> he, he's... 85 runs runnable yeah. I think less less than less, runnable I think because the first 100 was anyway that was cra- I mean that was crazy I mean to some extent it does show you that some of that coaching yeah you, know, you get your foot here make sure you do this yeah get to the pitch of the ball head over the ball watch it <laughs> watch it carefully yeah. yep get your head in the right place yep get your hands through it yeah and that's it right reverse hitting reverse oh. hit. It was, I mean, I know, that that was the standout innings of the tournament, and not just the tournament, but like yeah, perhaps like you said, perhaps in our lifetime. Just I mean, to score two hundred in a one day game when you're literally, you know what, you know, two two three wickets left in the bag. Yeah, was yeah, it? And Pat uh, Cummins, 70, I don't know how many. Seventy for seven. Yeah, uh, I think there were ninety seven for seven. Ninety seven. And it was, and he scored the two hundred right, literally yeah. from that point onwards. So, um, yeah, that was definitely a standout. Definitely a massive standout. Um, I hadn't, then, even, I hadn't even seen that much of him until this tour. This tour, I've seen right. clips and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pff, something else. Yeah, no. I think I think in terms of just pure hitting, um, you know, the the skills that some of these guys have. I mean, to play three sixty is, is is amazing in itself. Uh, you know, to to be able to hit all around the wicket. But um, yeah, no. I think that was definitely one of the standouts. Um, but what do you make of these? What do you, we were just talking about it off yeah. there. This. Um, you know this. Uh, you know India, as you said, were obviously clearly the best team in the tournament. Yes. Um, uh, playing really, really well. Yeah. Did they? I mean, lots of criticism over the the, the pitches that they were specifically playing on, yeah. being flown in the semi final. A lot of criticism for that. Yeah. You know, where where do you stand on that? Uh, essentially, look, the BCCI are probably the most powerful board, you know, monetary wise and in terms of influence. And this was a, it's essentially a home World Cup. Um, and I guess it's, I think a team that good just doesn't need any assistance, right? And, and you know, you would have thought that they would have come out trumps in majority of those scenarios with home support because the last three World Cups have been won by the home team. Yeah. England in England, uh, Australia went in Australia as well, and I think India in India prior to that. Yeah. So it's it had all gone with form, so to speak. But um, but I, I don't know. Maybe there was just a bit more riding on this one in terms of you know you know political influence and that type of thing. You know they played the final in the Narendra Modi Stadium. So good. So you know good. with Mr Modi in in uh, attendance as well. And, you know, we were talking off air. I mean, the, the, seeing him going to the dressing room afterwards, trying to console the players. I mean, yeah, yeah it was a strange one. Um, were there any cricket fans other than Indians who weren't happy? I think it was probably the first time I was ever happy to watch Australia win a cricket match. Yeah, I, 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 a lot of people have said that. And I think that generally was the consensus <laughs> because the thing I found strange was... 130,000 people in the stadium and you couldn't they hit 200 and you couldn't even hear them that that is for me is like it's great when your team's winning yeah support them but they need your support and up when you're when you're not clicking you know maybe that little boost at that stage you know catapults them up to you know maybe a 300 someone goes crazy at the end yeah. you never know but I think that's that's the thing I found and I was there 
Um, I was at the Champions Trophy final here in at the Oval. I think it's 2017 was the year. So India Pakistan and Indian fans had outnumbered Pakistan fans within the ground. You could see they'd flown in. You know they were from specific tour parties. Right. But after Pakistan put 300 plus on the board, there was zero sound from these guys. You know, and and that's where I was like, you're in the majority. It won't take a lot if you can rally a little bit. You know, you very quickly become the 12th yeah. man. But I don't know. I mean, you, you saw all the big stars over there, you know, your Shahrukh Khans and all these types of characters in no, the just, crowd and everything. But I saw it was great. And then uh, the scenes of them, like the whole stadium just clearing out, yeah. you know, within like five minutes of it finishes, just <laughs> wonderful to what really, really wonderful. You know, Pat Cummins just like standing on a stage on his yeah. own, like so good. Yeah, I mean, even Modi walked off the stage pretty sharpish. Here you go, fella. And, and then that was it. And, empty, sta- uh, empty stadium yeah. for it all. Just, you know. But Perfect for the Aussie mentality, though, no? Oh, they'd love it. Oh, Don't they'd know. love it. Yeah, I yeah, think totally. that really was right up their street. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I mean. I think that's why it's probably the first time I've ever thought, yeah. these guys, these guys, gonna, these guys <laughs> are going to do it, I think. And, I, and it was the first time I thought I actually want, you know, wanted them to... Um, hmm to do it as well so that was but yeah 130 it's a huge stadium isn't it oh, Narendra yeah. Modi Stadium he's there all the stars are there yeah and they're probably the fly, they fly in another pitch yeah batter them well, I know <laughs> <laughs> happens it happens but um, but aside from that obviously I mean look, the Pakistan campaign was, was pretty disappointing overall barring uh, the innings of Fakhar Zaman against New Zealand which was some, oh, yeah. some serious hitting yeah so that was good to see but now now I mean, for all the criticism that Pakistan gets in terms of the way they run the BCCI, you know, you these old old fellas, you know, in as chairman and, you know, you have a lot of that side of things. And obviously they brought in Ramiz Raja recently and then they chopped him off. But now, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, Hamza, but chief of selectors is Wahab Riyas, okay, the fast bowler, who's still playing in the uh, PSL. So is this, this is the new setup this is following, the new setup following, following the Barbara's Cup. resignation. So Barbara's resigned. Yeah. Uh, they've obviously brought in a new captain for the test side, which I think is Shan Masood, and they've made Shaheen Afridi the ODI captain. Okay. Um, but interestingly, they've put not just... So Wahab Riyas comes in as head of selection. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, a, and who was the old head of just, selection? Uh, old head of selection was Inzamam. Okay. Yeah, so that's where... Yeah, the picking of his nephew was yeah, being brought yeah. about, and then he got dropped, and that's when Fakhar Zaman came and played that innings against New Zealand. But I think the other part is now the tour manager for the Australia tour is going to be uh, Muhammad Afiz. Okay. So for all the criticism they get for having these old boys in and, you know, the, the, the prime minister picking the head of the BCCI, these guys have actually gone with... You know, peers. You know, people who will probably still play domestic cricket, if not international. They're not playing internationally anymore. But that's a weird setup in itself. It, isn't it's it? interesting. I mean, you got to go with something. We can't. We can't criticize them all the time. I think sometimes you got to try <laughs> something new. Um, and the fact that they've gone with someone who is actually probably in touch with the game. Um, may not. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the results are. I'm genuinely yeah. interested to see how it goes. But because Pakistan had had a good run in ODI cricket, rated one at, at, at you know going into I think prior to the Asia Cup. So what? So what happened Cup. there? It can't be the whole. So can't, you can't uh, you know um, support the setup while things are going yeah. well, and then when things go badly, just say oh it's the setup's fault. Can you? I think I think the, the I think reset button had to be hit in in, in certain respects because they were over reliant on two batsmen. Yeah, uh, which is Barbara and Rizwan. Uh, I think the key was the fact that they still play cricket from the 1990s. Power hitting is just not 
really part of their but got DNA. To, but, got, but got to ODI number one, position number one, playing that cricket. Yeah, I, but I think for tournament cricket, I don't think they were. Right. I don't think you put that you know that winning streak together. Okay. I think it's good playing bilaterals, and you you can pick up wins and what have you but I think during the Asia Cup they didn't even make it to the final right. so I think the signs were there and then the, the probably the key thing was they lost Nassim Shah who's probably their premier fast bowler next to Shaheen of course yeah. Shaheen Afridi but then having said that I think under Indian conditions like we were talking about before fast bowlers were getting carted left right yeah. and centre so um, I think I think the the general sort of mindset of the way Pakistan play cricket has to change they're, 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 they're decades behind others okay. they really are decades you can't just rely on the fact that okay we might lose wickets so you know Rizwan and Barbara can play at run a ball you, you can't have a strike rate like that anymore yeah you got to go for it haven't you yeah I think I mean teams don't die wondering I mean England did die wondering this <laughs> tournament but generally speaking they don't you know and that's what made, that's what proved so successful I just think they've just gotten a bad run yeah. um, but I think you have to cricket has to be played in a certain way now more so than ever and po- bowling has always actually been uh, Pakistan's strong point is mm. actually what actually let them down in this World Cup mm. they, they couldn't defend you know I think it was you know almost 300 plus against Afghanistan yeah, yeah you know if you can't do that it just goes to show you how much other teams have actually caught up and the fact that they haven't progressed yeah, it's interesting isn't it it was um, you know Afghanistan had Great World Cup. Oh, yeah. Uh Bangladesh less so. You thought they'd do a bit better, no? Yeah, they haven't really kicked on. I think I think I think what helped uh, Afghanistan is two things. One is it was uh, spinners yeah. were doing very well at this World Cup and they have I mean in, in Rashid Khan they have a world class yeah. spinner um, backed up by some very, very good youngsters as well. So I think this World Cup came perfectly right. timed for them but yeah I think Bangladesh doesn't have that star power you know, they and the West really Indies even, don't even make it no no uh, I think that just goes to show you how you know the decline of the game has happened in the West Indies yeah. you know whether they've moved they've always said that the American sports have dominated you know the West Indies more so in the last few decades having uh, I would say a less successful team. I, I remember, you know, as if the, the famous commentary goes, remember the name Carlos Brathwaite yeah. when he hits, uh, you know, Ben Stokes out the ground to win. I think that was the ODI World Cup. 2020. T20 World Cup. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, yeah, but I mean, despite that, I guess, you know, culturally things have changed in the Caribbean and, and, and cricket perhaps isn't, uh, you know, as popular as it yeah. once was. And no funding and bad port, bad setups, no facilities. No, exactly. it doesn't help. No, exactly. So, so yeah. So it's an interesting World Cup, all the same. Um, you know, I think. Um, I think they. I think they are going to have to change that that format. Yeah. You need more knockout. You need more knockout games to to yeah. generate more excitement. Yes. You can you can try and milk more money by having the, um, you know, just big big teams all playing each other yeah. as much as you want. But yeah. no one's watching if the games aren't exciting or if they don't mean anything. So you've got to have, you've got to have an, at least another round of knockout cricket in there, mm. I just thought. Yeah, I think so. I think that's probably the format that's, that's probably better. You know, um, just having semi and a final knockout because there's there's too much posturing before then and yeah. you're not, you know, if you, if you don't hit the ground running, you, you'll be out on one game and, you know, effectively, that's what happened. How much you know jostling for position can you do? It's more, and it's more exciting when you know when you start getting games that are knockout. Yes, and that, and and also it tests the mentality more, mm. and that's more what World Cup cricket is yeah, about. It's absolutely. like how can you how can you perform under the pressure? Yes, not just millions of group games where you're yeah. going to come. Yeah, yeah, break records, hit centuries upon centuries. Then yeah. when it comes to it, yeah, four, but yeah. But otherwise, I think as a spectacle, I think it was decent. So, you know, 
So we'll see. We'll see how the ODI game develops. But T20 has definitely helped it. I mean, you wouldn't have seen innings like Maxwell's, I think, without something like T20. Being yeah, 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 totally. I think, I, yeah, I think it does fall in that middle ground a little yeah. bit, like between the between the Test match cricket and the yeah. excitement of T20. Yeah. Um, and so I think they are going to have to tweak some of the rules and stuff to mm. just make it a bit more get you know find a bit more excitement the middle overs is pretty boring to watch yeah true and <laughs> yeah just milked milk spinners getting milked right yeah. basically i think i'm gonna have to but i don't know what they do but i think i'm gonna have yeah. to think about power plays there. perhaps or something along yeah, those lines to bring in but yeah so moving uh tack will um obviously we've had an international break which which really has become mind-numbingly boring they're just you know, awful aren't they I know it, it's just it's strange how these international breaks have just become so mundane it's it, I don't know whether it just ranks the mediocrity of the game I, aside from England who I generally speaking I don't watch them play I don't watch I don't watch any international uh, football right in these breaks right barring Ever. tournaments basically yeah no I, I, it's very rare that you turn on right yeah um, but I did see that France beat Gibraltar 14-0 oh, I saw that 14 I, I saw the uh, I saw <laughs> I saw the half-time speech yeah. from Didier Deschamps saying, it's 7-0, guys, yeah. but I don't want us to stop. Yeah. We can break records here. It's like, oh, God. Uh, I really? mean, that's the thing about international football. I mean, is that even a contest? What's the point? 14-0 in an international game. I mean, it, that's what I'm saying. I think international football, while I understand that you need to get teams together to have that you know build a little bit of a bond camaraderie you know what have you but the majority of the time look in in a run up to the international tournament give them a couple of weeks at least a, you know maybe a four or five five week run up to a tournament and just see what they can do and develop yeah, yeah. I don't think you're going to develop anything new Oh yeah, you know, in these but these are just weeks. nonsense quali- qualifiers, aren't they? Some of them. Are what was was this qualifiers or friendlies? I think I one don't even was. Know. I know. I think they were both qualifiers. Yeah, so they got to play these. That's the yeah. prob- that's the problem, isn't it? You got to play these qualifiers so that there's so smaller nations at least have a chance of making it. Yeah. Sometime, yeah. so you got to do them. I guess it's when they. It's, when, it's the friend. It's the friendlies where you're really like was really yeah. That's unnecessary. And and isn't there that new strange tournament that's just totally unnecessary? Yeah, the European one, right? Yeah, it's just none. European League. What's it called? Yeah, yeah, that thing. <laughs> that's, that, that's that's what I'm saying. Don't I even think. know what it is. Yeah, exactly. Just stick to normal things. European Championships, World Cup, two major tournaments. Yeah, you yeah. know, if you, and then else. they're all on. And then they're all on planes coming back for the biggest match of the season yeah, so far. Absolutely. Twelve thirty, twelve thirty kickoff. Exactly. Yeah, good clock. App, app Absolutely kicking off about it again. I'm not surprised. I mean, the thing is, like a lot of his squad, I mean, from Brazil, yeah, you know, South exactly. America, they're flying Pep in. Gets Pep tells them all to call in injured. They've yeah, all yeah. been at home all <laughs> they've been at home all week resting up. Unbelievable. Excellent, excellent. Unbelievable. But, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting start to the season overall, uh, premiership wise. Yeah. Um what's your what's your thinking been so far? I think oh, I, don't, I have enjoyed it. I think there's a lot going on. Yeah. Um it's Man City Chelsea game was a standout, right? For Man City Chelsea t- was a standout. Crazy football. Can Even the... Do you see the Tottenham Chelsea game? That was yeah, manic. Yeah, that was I mean that was one of the mo- one of the stupidest half the second half. Yeah. Was one of the stupidest halves of football <laughs> from both teams. Yeah. That I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I, can, I still just cannot believe that was when I knew Tottenham were not a serious football club. Yeah, when they play, when when they were playing that line, and 
And in the interviews afterwards, Ange was just like, that's the way we're going to play. It's like, fine, you don't want to win anything. Yeah. Get it. Get it. <laughs> okay, got it. I thought I thought you guys were serious. Yeah. Or at least we're going to take it seriously. You're top of the league. You've won every game or whatever. Yeah. You're going to try and take this seriously. Oh, you're not going to... You're not. And that was it. And then now they're <laughs> well, going to fight for fourth. Is it not a mindset thing that he did that? Well, this is the way we play, yeah, guys, or, whatever happens. Yeah, or they could have taken a point and they'd have all been buzzing saying we took a point oh, off you. No, that's, that's Mourinho-esque, isn't it, there? Taking a point with nine <laughs> men against... I mean, they would have loved that. That modern-day football. They would have absolutely... With nine men, they would have absolutely loved it. Yeah. Everyone would have been buzzing saying, look how serious we are. Yeah. And instead, they came away going, oh, yeah, we've got great mindset, and then they lose to, to Wolves as well. Yeah, and now they're, done. Now, they're gonna, now they're on with a battle on their hands for fourth. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, even before the season started, and I said this to a lot, I mean, I, I have a lot of colleagues that I work with who are Arsenal fans, know a lot of guys who are Tottenham fans, know a lot of guys who are Liverpool fans, right? So basically, all these guys are there, and said, you can't compete. <laughs> In the sense that monetary-wise, you just can't compete. Yeah. Because, yeah, the, the gap that City have and the yeah. buying power, and it's a money game now. I mean, look at Arsenal, spent, you know, 100M on, you know, Declan Rice and what have you, but you know it's not I mean I just don't see any of these these teams being able to last 40 plus games and, and win win more than City I think it's you know it's I the question it's, um, this season is just whether City are a bit bored of it all yeah basically yeah thing. after a, yeah is there kind of any sort of downtime and, after a triple uh, and, trouble? And, and when they're bored mm. it doesn't mean they're going to only get 70 yeah. points it yeah. means they're still going to get good points on the ball yeah. but it's just whether you can put together something where you can see them off with I don't know 88 yeah. 88 90 points yeah Normally yeah. that wouldn't be enough. No, correct. But it's the, this is a type of season you can see it. If yeah. someone can get 85, 88 points, yeah, and then they could concentrate on the Champions take, League. You right? might, you might, you 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 could potentially take it off them this season. I think. Yeah, I, I think overall in in the overall run, I think City again will cruise it this year. The yeah, league yeah. for sure. Champions League is very open. I think a lot of the Euro, the the teams that are in there, you know, your Arsenal's or whatever. No, I don't think Arsenal will win it, but yeah, I think there's. There's more chance of winning a Champions League than a Premier mm, League possibly. Yeah, for a lot of teams. But, but I mean, talking of which, aside from that, I'll take your thoughts on this first. 10 point deduction. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, well, when you were talking about the firepower yeah. Man City have got, yep. 115 violations being yep. looked at, yep. and, I, Everton get 10, and Everton I get 10 points. I don't think it will stay 10 points. I, look, I, either way, I think this was the best season to get a 10-point hit if there ever was a good time to get one. Why is that? Because there's three worse teams than us in the league. Even with the 10 points? Even with the 10 points. That's what I'm saying. In, in past be years, you mean trouble. I think we'll be 10 points clear. That's how it is. So, so we're not, right now, we're still not even bottom of the league. Yeah, that, second that, round, that's yeah. the laugh. That's the laughing thing of it, and I think we've you've got a manager who who will just get you by basically. Yeah. You know, he's a relegation specialist, but I think it's just galling. Yeah, that that we would get a ten point deduction when you know. I mean, we don't have money to be flagrant with, right? It was I think the level of financial fair play was something like you have to be within one one oh five, and yeah. we were one forty or something along those lines. I think it was even less. Yeah, I think it was, I think the discrepancy was less. Yeah. I think it was over twenty million, and it was about and, right. and it was over some accounting methods. Yeah, and you know if you're getting a ten point um, fine over what. Uh, yeah. he's, I guess accredited auditors have signed off accounts on. Yeah, yeah. Pretty oh. tricky. I don't think it will stay ten. It's going to uh, come in. It will yeah. come in on appeal, won't it? Probably be half. 
I hope but so. Still, but but I mean, it's just, I, I just I don't understand why they've set such a broad for their own backs because what, you're telling this. me surely yeah. that if, if Everton have done wrong, then what are the other clubs? I mean, Chelsea's spending is like that of, you know, it's like Liberia. You know, it's the GDP of a, of a small African country. It's ridiculous. How has that been managed? How has that been managed? I don't, know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, Man City have got 115 violations on the on the card, right? I mean, the other thing they're now talking about is clubs that have tie-ups with other clubs in different countries. You know, like with the ownership, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. like Saudi, for example, only yeah, cost yeah, yeah. I know in Saudi countries. What apparently they'll do is inflate certain prices for players so that financial fair play can get bypassed. Yeah, I mean, what was really interesting on that was. I thought this was a no-brainer. There was a, there was a, because Newcastle are now going to loan in a load of players who get bought by clubs yes, in Saudi. Correct. So you get, you just have clubs from Saudi buying them yep. and then loaning them to Newcastle for the season to get yep. away. Which, and but there was a club, uh, there was a Premiership vote on that. Premier League clubs vote on that. Yes. And eight clubs voted to keep it going. Newcastle one of them. But who are yeah, the yeah, other? Yeah. Why do the other? Se- I couldn't work it out. Why are the other seven, seven? And they weren't like all like big clubs. Yeah. So why are all these other clubs, are they all hoping to get bought by? Maybe. Are they hoping that this by doing this vote, they're signalling, oh, we'll take... I didn't, I didn't get it. Um, this was so obvious, obvious the thing that it should just be voted against. Maybe the Saudis are giving them free tickets to Hajj. You never know. You never know what, what is being offered here. But I, would th- I think we're all pretty clear that it's a money game. And that's, you know, money, money defines not just success, but also survival or you know around rules nowadays and that's that's it. what it looks like me so uh, it was a strange thing to see i mean when 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 it was announced you know i was i was at work and everyone knows i'm an everton fan they say oh you're a 10 point deduction i was like yeah like that's ever gonna happen and it was on sky sports and then you read it and it's like wow all right so you're hitting us you're yeah. hitting the little guys yeah. you know what are these big guys doing and that's that that's what I think, you know, it is it's the firepower, the lawyers that you have, what's at your disposal. Yeah. Man City can probably tie this up into court year after year, um, but um, but you know, I I think you should go back to the times where, you know, look, Man United were a dominant club. They were the most popular club in the world, had the most revenue, bought the best players. That's how it was. Why is it different now? Why are we becoming all, you know, sort of moralistic about money being spent? It's a money game. It's entertainment. It always has been. Exactly. But thank you for joining us uh, on Saturday Morning Live. Um, do join us in the coming weeks. Um, thank you for your company on the show and thank you for listening. We'll speak to you soon. Asalaamu As Alaikum.